Guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. So the mood around town, around Dubai at the moment is summer holidays. Schools are out, it's AIDS at Adha, and people are planning their summer trips. Some people are lucky enough to be able to work remotely, spend six, eight weeks out of the city, but definitely not in the startup space. Uh, even though tech prices and a lot of uh, talk about macro things globally uh, might put a dampener on it, but we don't feel and see that in the UAE or across the region. There's still such a lot of momentum in the startup space, and we don't often delve uh, into it deeply, but this today's conversation really does. We touch on a lot of things, talk about some of the big players and a hugely exciting and interesting space. Uh, our founder, our uh, guest who's co-founder of his startup uh, talks about today. So enjoy the conversation. back to another episode of Dubai Works Business Podcast. This week we're joined by Sanad Yagi. He is the co-founder of Dukan Tech. So they are a store management platform aiming to help business owners to keep track of transactions, monitor sales, calculate VAT and generate reports and calculate profit margin. Today we're going to talk about how he came up with the idea, uh, the competition, the marketplace, uh, the industry and also their plans for the future. Welcome Sanad. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in on a Friday morning when everyone else is <laughs> off on holiday. No, no worries. So such is the the life of an entrepreneur. Exactly. No uh, days off. No days off. <laughs> is that true? Do you take any days off? Um, probably about one day a month. One day a month. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Any particular day or you just need a, you know when you need a rest? I know when I need to recover. <laughs> it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It just hits you. So when did you start off to contact? Uh, in ideation or when did we actually launch the business? A bit of both. So we started thinking about the Cantec uh, back when I was working at Mubadala, based out of London, um, me and my co-founders. And, you know, it didn't really come into fruition for another, I would say, seven, seven and a half months. When was that? Uh, right before COVID. So March 2020 yeah. uh, is when we first had the idea. Uh, we spent most of 2020 validating the idea. Uh, and then launched in January of 2021. Okay, cool. And what exactly is Ducantec? Ducantec aims to simplify the lives of MSMBs. Um, and we do that in three main ways, three what? main value SMMBs? Oh, uh, micro, small businesses yeah. uh, or enterprises. Um, so, you know, your typical mom and pop grocery retailer, um, even all the way towards, you know, laundry and other kinds of services. Um, so what we do is we provide them with, like you mentioned, the store management software. Uh, and that software has everything you need to be able to run your store. It even has kind of advanced analytics that are delivered super simply so that everyone can understand how to better improve their profit margins, but also scale up their revenue as well, maybe save on costs as well. Um, so that's kind of the, the first piece of the picture. Uh, we realized very quickly when we were validating the business that a lot of the merchants uh, that we work with today uh, lacked the kind of 
let's say, operational software that they require to be able to move kind of into the digital world. Uh, so that was step one, right, is the software. Step two was how do we create some form of digital presence to make sure that these merchants actually uh, can survive in kind of an e-commerce world. Um, and so we started releasing white-labeled consumer applications and websites. Uh, and then step three is payment infrastructure. So supporting the merchants and their ability to accept all kinds of different credit cards, debit cards, Apple Pay, et cetera. Okay. Uh, well described. So I get all three parts and I can think of the different players of the different offerings along the way. So this is assuming that, that uh, you know, I guess in many of these stores, they don't have computers and they don't have, you know, they're, they're tills, not at desktops. Exactly. Uh, so how have you overcome that challenge, I guess, first? So what we did is, you know, part of that validation phase was first recognizing where the problem was. Uh, which is that you know, most of these merchants had no form of, uh, let's say, digital offering, whether that was for internal operations or for um, sales, right? Um, and then to facilitate both of those things, we felt that you needed to add payments and an e-commerce element to the solution. Um, and then we realized, okay, most of these stores don't have any form of hardware to support that solution. So we can go down the route of kind of, um, let's say, picking specific hardware for them and bundling it all together, again, to simplify the entire process. Or we can go down the route of let's recommend hardware to these merchants uh, and see how long it takes for them to actually get that hardware. Uh, we picked route number one uh, to reduce kind of the road bumps towards actually getting, um, towards bringing on board a merchant. Um, and that's so right now you get everything in a box. So it's one box. It's a tablet receipt printer. Um, you get a barcode scanner. Uh, it has an NFC uh, reader as well. Nice. Um, so you can manage everything directly from there. It also comes with a companion application uh, where you can track everything from anywhere, basically. So this is almost a point of sale device that you have. It's a point of sale inventory management CRM. Uh, analytics all kind of built into one. Oh wow, everything. And it, so so that seems, that's hardware, software. Uh, is that a custom device or did you sort of partner with someone for that? We started with a partnership and then we moved towards a custom device. Okay, where did you get them made? Uh, in China. And uh, so the second part of that then is uh, the, well I was thinking of the payment. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what was the second part again? So there's payments, uh, store management software, and e-commerce. And e-commerce. Oh, yeah, so the e-commerce part. Mm -hmm. So uh, is that kind of setting up a type of a Shopify system for them where they get a, a landing page, white label? Exactly. But it's, it's even easier with us, right? With us, your inventory is actually displayed in real time on your e-commerce presence, which is something a lot of these, uh, let's say, brick-and-mortar merchants, uh, regardless of the tier, have struggled with in the past. Yeah. And then, so, and so how does that actually look then, or, you know, how does one interact with that? So typically it's either a consumer application in the name of the merchant. Yeah. Uh, so we have over a thousand of those released now. Wow. Um, or alternatively, it can be an, a website. Okay. Yeah. Standard website. Fair enough. And this, and if they have their own website or some digital presence, this can be added on as a sort of a forward slash or easily integratable. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And then on the payment side, how did you, uh, how did you navigate that with all the payment 
providers out there? Did you come up with your own? Did you integrate partners or did you make it open to many? Uh, so we made it open to as many as possible. Um, and then in the background, obviously, we're working on uh, different solutions for the different markets to make sure that we can provide the best possible solution for our merchants, right? Um, so we found that a lot of the payment providers actually are reluctant to work with these merchants uh, because it takes a long time to onboard a lot of small shops. Yeah. Um, and their GTVs or you know how much money they actually transact in isn't high enough to be worth that time if you're purely a payments provider. Yeah. Um, so you know at some stage I imagine we'll be bringing that in house. Okay. Uh, we've spoken to a few fintech kind of providers on this show before. One is Booney, and they do a lot of merchant onboarding like that. Is is that the type of company that you would partner with, or is that the type of offering that is one of three of what you do? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've spoken to Zbuni about potential partnerships in the past. I think we're, right now, we work with, uh, let's say, more f focused fintechs, uh, whereas Zbuni operates kind of on the e-commerce enablement as well. Yeah. Uh, we want pure play fintechs, um, obviously, for a lack of competitive overlap as well. Fair enough. Uh, and, you know, speaking about, I think it's interesting, uh, the timing of when you did it, because that did put a pressure on, you know, people weren't able to leave their house and they weren't able mm -hmm. to go down and buy groceries and it put a lot of pressure on those type of businesses. Um, and especially that shit, people weren't in malls, people weren't going out as much. Mm -hmm. um, and it did seem like a time where if you had a WhatsApp number and a good digital presence, you could do a lot of business. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that some companies, depending on what region they are, if they've got a good WhatsApp business account mm -hmm. and, a, and a payment link, you know, is that all they need? Do they need Ducantec as well? Yeah, they need Ducantec as well. Um, if you can't manage your own store's inventory, uh, you can't manage your e-commerce inventory. Yeah. Right. Um, so where we fit in is we aggregate everything into one, right? Which means that even WhatsApp integration, right? So sometimes you'll be WhatsApping a store having no idea that the messages are actually flowing through our software. Yeah. Um, and what we added to it as well is order management. So now every store has the capabilities to add drivers, have those drivers be rooted to the right places. So you no longer have to go back and forth with the merchant about where you are, how you're going to get there. Uh, there's a lot of pain points along the way of ordering from, say, a single shop owner that you don't have when you use an, uh, one of the bigger players like Amazon or Noon. Uh, and what we're trying to do is give these merchants all the technology that they need to be able to do the same things the bigger players are doing, uh, but in a super cost-effective, simple way. It sounds like you have taken out the pain points because, you know, if I'm thinking of those things, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, do it simply, but then to add the other things, you need to pay different softwares, procurements, and go through lots of... Uh, lots of uh, due diligence, lots of testing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, how do you position it uh, like you did at the start? But, you know, in that sort of um, communications parts, that's, th that industry, that sector is quite big in itself, right? Mm -hmm. Like the kind of CPAS, the cons uh, communications platform as a service. Mm -hmm. You know, that dialogue part is quite a big industry and there's a lot of tech going into it. 100%. Uh, and so is the fintech and so is the payment part, so is the point of sale part. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, so is the store management and fleet management. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you know, uh, have you been able to build out four sort of pieces that are in, in their own standalone startups? 
Yeah, I mean, what we did is we're an all-in-one, uh, which simplifies the entire process for a merchant. Instead of a merchant having to go to seven, eight different companies uh, to get the value that they need, uh, yeah. we do it in one shot. Okay, is it more expensive? And how do you keep the cost down? Um, how do we keep the co That's our little secret. <laughs> <laughs> so did you raise funds? Yeah, we did. Uh, we raised a seed round last November. Uh, we raised $5.2 million uh, from GFC, Coal Capital, uh, a lot of external US and European investors, um, and some great local investors as well. Okay, seed in, in last November, so we're in July now. So what's the kind of uh, product at the moment, and how, what's the customer uptake? So what we did since last November is we scaled to seven, six new markets, seven markets total. Uh, so we now operate uh, across the entire GCC and Turkey. Nice. Uh, we did that in just just under six months, which wow. uh, we're quite happy with. Um, and we now have over 10,000 merchants on our platform. Incredible. And consumer uptake? Consumer uptake is very positive. Um, when merchants have their white-labeled consumer applications, we see roughly a 12% increase in revenue. Okay, great. Uh, so, and again, once they... Really, it starts with the merchants. Once, mm -hmm. once they have that, then um, that's how they communicate digitally with their customers. And the customers, it's all white labels, so the customers don't even know what the Dukan tech in the background. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And a uh, couple, of, you mentioned before the show, but Dukan is store, Bilarabi. Yeah. It's it's a store. Uh, I th I knew of another word, but. Yeah, Mahal, but there's different dialect. And so uh, the, there was another meaning to the word? Yeah, so the, the original Fusha meaning of Dukkan is actually to organize a stack effectively, okay. uh, which we liked, right? And then for Dukkan Tech, uh, in Arabic, Dukkan Tech is your store. Yeah. Uh, that's what it directly translates to. And then ah. in English, it also has the Dukkan Tech, Dukkan Technologies, right? Yeah. So it's a little Very bit good. of a mix. Yeah. Perfect name. <laughs> uh, but you were in London with Mubadala. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it was an amazing experience. I was part of their venture capital team. I was lucky enough to, to kind of uh, leave straight from university and, and join uh, a venture capital growth fund. Where did you study? Uh, in Washington, D.C., American University. What did you study? Uh, finance and statistics. Okay, and when did you graduate? 2019. Oh, wow. 25, <laughs> 25 next week. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so you went straight into that VC world when yeah. you graduated, yeah. Uh, growth stage, venture capital. Uh, the objective of it was, you know, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, it's kind of been in my blood since day one. Um, so the objective of going into venture capital was to understand how the best and the brightest minds around the world were building businesses um, and you know that's what I was privy to see and, and how they solved problems what kind of cultures they built within their organizations um, and what problems were they trying to address uh, were crucial to kind of formulating the contact and building it out to, to where it is today yeah interesting so can you just explain for people what it's like joining a fund like that like what do you do you know are you are you analyzing startups or mm -hmm. with a financial background? Are you looking at the numbers? Are you doing projections? Are you looking at unit economics? Or what are the things that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, 100%. And all of those things, plus, you know, when you're an entry level, you're getting coffees, you're, <laughs> you're moving furniture. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to what is the fund thesis? So why are they investing? What are they investing in? Uh, finding startups that suit that thesis um, and then 
obviously there are prerequisites uh, that you're trained on, right? So how fast are they growing? What problem is, are they addressing? How strong is the team? Um, are kind of some of the few things that you look for when you're in the venture capital world. Um, and then how big is the market? Uh, so you scan hundreds of companies on a probably weekly basis. Uh, you read pitch decks, you analyze them, you uh, simplify them for the decision makers. Uh, and then when it comes time to actually invest in a deal, then you start to do all sorts of due diligence um, and obviously financial projections and, and things like that to see where it could potentially end up. And Mubadala's presence in London, what sort of fund are, are what sort of uh, investments were there? Were they were you looking at it? Does it is it a, is it a wide range? Uh, yeah, it's quite a wide range. Uh, from a venture capital perspective, they did uh, a lot of late stage deals. Uh, yeah, it was quite a big fund. Um, you know, deals like uh, Kazu, which recently yeah. went uh, public through a SPAC. That's a UK automotive type startup car yeah, set. Yeah, yeah. so you can buy used cars online, you can get financing for them. Um, there was a couple of very interesting deals while I was there that uh, kind of helped shape my thinking. Um, and even deals that we didn't end up doing, right? Uh, when you get to that level of startup, you're successful, right? So uh, whether someone chooses to invest in you or not, you're still a successful entrepreneur in business. So. Very good. And yeah, so I was glad you mentioned that. So what did, uh, from that experience, what did influence your thinking for Ducantech? What mm -hmm. type of, because you weren't necessarily exposed to uh, grocery stores in, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in your studies and in, in a VC firm. So what sort of led you to this? We saw a lot of deals that were what we call merchant empowerment deals. Um, so, you know, everything from the toasts in the U.S. Uh, all the way to kind of light speed commerce to uh, so a lot of these businesses, what we're doing is not necessarily reinventing the wheel. What we did is we adjusted it to the nuances of the Middle East and broader MENA region. Yeah, um, I still think what we have is definitely a global business. Uh, there are still untapped markets around the world, um, but it wasn't necessarily uh, re coming up with something completely new, right? It was kind of adjusting it for the GCC and now broadly Middle East region. Oh, did you grow up here? I grew up in Abu Dhabi. In Abu Dhabi, and yeah. then, so then you went to the US. Mm -hmm. uh, so you were naturally, was, were you always thinking of to have your business based here for this region? Yeah, I mean, this is home for me. Uh, I grew up here most of my life. So uh, if I was gonna start a business, it was gonna be here. Um, because obviously you have the amazing ecosystem. You have a lot of support, even from friends and family, uh, which early on is, is very, very important, uh, which helps you kind of go from zero to one, which is probably the most difficult phase yeah. so far. Yeah, Peter Thiel, the name of his Peter Thiel's book, <laughs> Zero to One. Um, so Mubadala are obviously Abu Dhabi based as well. Uh, did you? Did you register your business? Did you license it in, in Abu Dhabi or did you do We're it in Dubai? We're licensed in all seven Emirates. Okay. Um, so that's the... So you actually have a, in a free zone in, uh, in seven Emirates? Uh, not necessarily free zone. In Abu Dhabi, we're actually onshore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it depends on the, the Emirate. In, the, in Dubai, we chose the MCC. They're super flexible. Yeah. Um, it was a very quick process, same in Abu Dhabi. Um, and we also have an ADGM entity as well. Um, so from a legal perspective, we tried to cover all of our bases to make sure that 
you know, we don't end up with situations in the future. Yeah, definitely. And well, there's a lot of paperwork and admin and costs as well, although it is quite fast. But so why why did you need to be licensed in each MRES? Is that related to the sector that you're in or just in general to cover yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit confusing uh, whether or not you actually have to. Uh, we pick the side of caution. Um, so, I mean, it, broadly speaking, there's a lot of businesses that operate in all Emirates with one entity. Yeah. Uh, but federal law dictates that that's not how you should do it. So we went by the book here. So, for example, if you wanted to onboard a merchant, one of your 10,000 merchants is a restaurant in Ras Al Khaimah. Mm -hmm. Ideally, the best way to interact with them is through your trade license in Ras Al Khaimah. Yeah, exactly. So okay. From a contractual legal perspective, yeah. Okay, and does that mean that you need to be operational in each of those Emirates? Uh, As in, do you need to have uh, uh, offices and team and bank accounts and all that sort of stuff? Uh, no, not necessarily. Just uh, licensed? Yeah, just licensed. Just activity to operate? Exactly. Okay, yeah. and then Abu Dhabi Global Markets, so uh, that's where your holding company is? Um, our holding, yeah, I mean, one of our holding companies. Our yeah. corporate structure is a little bit uh, <laughs> confusing even for me. Um, so yeah, it's one of our holding companies. ADGM is probably one of the most advanced uh, fintech, um, let's say, regulators in the region. Uh, so we decided to to work with them on the fintech side. It definitely suits what type of, what type of business you are, mm -hmm. and the fundraising. Then you know, uh, I guess a couple of questions on this, but generally. Uh, was it hard to kind of, you see, you see numbers through Mobility, you see how to assess market like you described. Mm -hmm. Was it hard to convince people of the opportunity in the Middle East, uh, especially in this sector? Um, I think it was definitely easier than it would have been five years ago. Uh, thanks, thanks really to the, the successful startups that came out of here in the last 10 years. Uh, the Kareem's, the Instashops, the you know, Mom's Worlds, they, these have all kind of convinced the Sorry, uh, these have all kind of convinced the uh, the broader venture capital ecosystem that um, you know there's a lot more uh, potential in this part of the world. There's the talent, there's the ecosystem, and now there's the capital, right? So there's no excuse for entrepreneurs like myself to to not succeed and thrive. Yeah. So the funds are available for here, although, you know, different climates and different mm -hmm. every year it feels like a different bit of a mood around <laughs> investor appetite. But there there obviously is a lot of momentum and startups in the region. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned that you'd also managed to bring on boards, uh, investors globally from mm -hmm. different parts of the world. What was the conversation like with them about this region in terms of, you know, that's a high uh, seeds value, uh, amount mm -hmm. and yeah, for this region, that's a high amount, right? And yeah. um, therefore, they would need to see value from this region. Or did you need to tell them that, hey, we're just starting here, but we're a global company? I think with some, it was uh, we have global ambitions, uh, which we do. Uh, with others, they are looking at the region. I mean, global venture capital right now is uh, gung-ho about this part of the world. Uh, so it wasn't as difficult as I think uh, people would expect. Um, they were knowledgeable about the ecosystem, they were knowledgeable about the markets, they were knowledgeable about the kind of common challenges that you may face uh, in this part of the world, um, and they were looking to deploy capital. And I mean, we're currently uh, at the tail end of a second fundraise, um, and you know, again, with very big participation from a US-based investor, and uh, it was very similar, where 
you know, even if they hadn't invested in the region before, uh, they're setting up offices in the next couple of years. They're looking to pick out their very first investment in the region, and they're looking for strong, talented entrepreneurs with good businesses to, to invest in. Okay, interesting. So you're doing your Series A now or pre? Uh, Pre-Series A. Okay, yeah. and um, just on that, so you started with the idea during mm-hmm. the pandemic. 2021 was quite a good year for investments yeah, there's a lot of liquidity everywhere. Yeah. There isn't as much in 2022. <laughs> have have yeah. you experienced that? Uh, I can say that we've been blessed in the sense that n- not really. Um, I think we we set up from day one trying to build a sustainable business, uh, not a business that's selling a dollar for 90 cents. Um, and that's helped us dramatically uh, moving into this kind of, let's say, downturn in the economy and the broader economy and now this push for profitability. Um, we didn't have any significant issues. I definitely felt that the due diligence was much more intense. Yeah, fair. the bar was much higher. Uh, but you know, we comfortably reached that bar. Yeah, that, as in the the funds are were there from before, probably, and they need still need to be deployed. So mm-hmm. from that point of view, but yeah, as you said, you know, people are just a little bit more cautious with the future in, in mind. 100%. I mean, and it makes sense, right? I come from a venture capital background. Why should I pay X multiple uh, when in six months that multiple is going to be halved, right? Yeah. So you really need to be able to justify, uh, you know, your growth, your, let's say, uh, retention, your ability to continue to grow at the same rate as well, uh, even in a potential downturn. Uh, how recession-proof is the business? Uh, Thing, questions that, you know, in the past we never even thought of. Yeah, interesting. And the reason for expanding first across the GCC, was mm-hmm. that because of proximity or, uh, you know, obviously there are markets in, say, Iraq or Northern Africa that have a higher population and maybe more people that can uh, be digitized or more stores and more businesses at a mm-hmm. smaller level are... It, they obviously sort of a target for you and being able to uh, empower those type of markets to sort of uh, who, you know, who don't have, say, the sort of 5G uh, and mm-hmm. the, the smartphone and digital penetration and the speed that we have in the UAE and KSA. Is that is that a big focus for now? Uh, I think when we looked at the re- so. When, when we looked at expansion, we kind of broke it down into a couple of different variables. Uh, variable one, population, uh, which is obviously very significant, mm. uh, both population in terms of broadly number of people, but also in terms of number of merchants, obviously. Um, and then two, really, it came down to uh, purchasing power. Um, it came down to credit card penetration, uh, because at the end of the day, even if you give a merchant the ability to accept credit cards, if his customers won't pay with credit cards, right? It's kind of useless. Mm. Um, So all of those factors factored into our expansion plans. Um, And then, you know, we set out to do it as quickly as possible. Our our initial plan was um, to do uh, the GCC in a year. Um, We ended up doing the GCC in roughly three months and then added Turkey after that. Okay. And when when you market entry is like obviously regulation and getting set up and being able to operate is you know first protocol you have to be able to do that and then do you 
how do you approach it? Do you put people on the ground? Do you do digital marketing? Like how, how do you onboard those merchants? I think it depends on the specific market. Uh, some markets respond better to digital marketing. Other markets will respond better to people on the ground. Um, but in like which markets? <laughs> <laughs> I think in Turkey, digital marketing goes a lot further. Same in Kuwait okay. uh, versus kind of, uh, let's say, Oman or Bahrain. Uh, people on the ground would probably be the better approach there. Okay. And you're already in Saudi? We're already in Saudi as well. Okay. And uh, um, how's, that, how's that market been for you? I think it's been quite welcoming, uh, to be honest. We, we had no issue entering Saudi from a regulatory perspective. Um, and then uh, I think the merchants are very similar to the UAE. Yeah. Uh, so it was a quick transition uh, with very little nuances uh, to be able to start operating in Saudi and start delivering value to merchants there as well. Uh, and you're mainly based in the UAE. You're yeah. a, a Dubai startup. Yeah. But, and what's your team? How, what sort of team do you have? <laughs> it's a very international team. I think we have over 15 nationalities working with us. Great. Um, and some are all over the world. Uh, so we do uh, also have a lot of remote teams as well. Um, yeah, it's, it, I think it's representative of the city that we live in, right? Absolutely. Uh, very diverse. Yeah, and your co-founder? Uh, I have two co-founders. Uh, we both, all three of us, grew up together at the same high school in, uh, yeah, in uh, Abu Dhabi. Um, and one of my co-founders is Emirati. The other one is uh, Palestinian, Jordanian, like myself. Oh, perfect. Great. Yeah. Good mix. Uh, and what do they do? <laughs> yeah. Um, or what, yeah, what, what do they bring to the table? What's the mix? 100%. So uh, Shadi, uh, who is kind of on the operations side, has a background in cost optimization. Uh, so his role is to, to argue with me as much as possible because <laughs> I am a, very much a burn-it-all kind of yeah. person. Um, Risk taker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Ali is uh, our co-founder and president, and he uh, helps us deal with all types of different regulatory uh, challenges that we face and leads actually our fintech vertical. Completely. Okay, amazing. So he's more on the tech side of things. Yeah, yeah more on the fintech side, exactly. central bank relationships, oh, okay. how to you know, navigate that space. And from a from a... A tech and development point of view, how did you approach that? It's a very interesting question. Uh, we started with uh, looking at outsourcing. Uh, we ended up outsourcing the MVP uh, before raising funds and bringing the team in house. So that was our strategy. Okay, uh, so you would have worked with, you would have recruited from websites online, trying to find good talent, yeah. put something together, and then know what type of skill set you need in-house and build your team accordingly. Yeah, so it helped starting with an outsourced team uh, because they help guide you through what kind of technologies you want to use. Uh, but I think it, just like with anything, making the right decision on who to work with is, is very, very important. Yeah, so can you, like, without getting too technical, <laughs> I, know, I know our <laughs> listeners are fairly broad, but yeah. can you just explain you know, what sort of tech stack you have, what, you know, or what's your view on it, how much do you code yourself, mm -hmm. how much do you license, what cloud approach do you have? Uh, so everything is in-house, uh, A to Z, built in-house uh, from scratch. Um, our tech stack is something that, you know, we are quite protective over. Yeah. Uh, so I can't really get into the nitty gritty details. Uh, on a high level, um, the back end is uh, C sharp. Uh, the front end is Flutter. Um, you know, there's some, some very interesting database schema that we've built out as well. Uh, how much do I code myself personally? Uh, none, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Too busy raising funds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the broader yeah. team 
builds everything in house. Yeah, and and so uh, um, because a lot of the speed in the rollout is how good the product is, and you, you're uh, obviously yeah. doing a lot of things. So, like, uh, you might encode yourself, but are you are you involved in the product? Are you involved in yeah. features? Yeah, yeah. The UI, everything like that. Yeah, I'm the the only product manager at the company. Okay. Right now. Um, it helps because uh, I spent a lot of time as a sales executive. I spent a lot of time as an ops executive, uh, speaking to merchants, understanding their problems, uh, which I still do at least once a week. Uh, mm. Once a week, I'm in the market speaking with merchants. Um, and that helps me uh, formulate new features. Um, it helps me um, work with the tech team to deliver everything in the correct way, which for us is as simple as possible. Yeah, how do you view the? That's an interesting how you described it. Your product manager as well as a co-founder, but a product manager is almost can dual like as a CTO, as mm -hmm. a project manager, and it, it's really sort of a key role in a startup, isn't mm -hmm. it? I think we we split it in an interesting way. We have an amazing CTO um, who kind of works. We work alongside each other very intensely. Uh, and he covers for my weaknesses, uh, which are obviously development. Mm. Um, so you know, we we I I give him the the feature, the idea, how I want it to be delivered, uh, and then he comes up with the right way to communicate to the team. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, yeah. And has it been tricky for you guys? Like, if mm -hmm. you if you studied, went to school with those guys, they're obviously similar age to you. Mm -hmm. Has it been tricky for you to? Uh, well, hire senior people, but also deal with a lot of those funds. And have you got advisors? Have you got a board in place? Yeah, we do. Uh, we have a lot of amazing mentors as well, which helped us significantly along the journey um, and still help us every single day. Uh, from a fund perspective, I think, you know, they're, they're quite used to dealing with younger founders. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think there was uh, any kind of issues there. Your, your interests are aligned. Um, but from uh, hiring senior talent, uh, it's all about bringing in the right people. Uh, more broadly speaking about talent, right? you want to have people who uh, know more than you do, uh, which for us, obviously, with our inexperience, is a lot of people. <laughs> so yeah. uh, they can, uh, you know, we bring people in so that they can run the show. Um, they can run their business unit. So, can you, so how many people are there? 140. Changing every week, I think. Yeah, uh, <laughs> There's a lot. So you might have brought in someone senior on the people and culture, the HR side. Yep. And uh, can you just explain that? Because I often wonder if someone, you obviously, with that speed and that amount of people, mm -hmm. you need someone who knows what they're doing in that area. Mm -hmm. But then there's a culture thing that you need to get right as well. Is it a bit of an offset of like, let's bring in experience, but let's also try and create our own uh our own company vibe and culture and flow? From a people and culture perspective, uh, let's start with the culture side. Uh, from a culture side, I think you know we try as co-founders to keep that under our uh, control as much yeah. as possible. Yeah. Okay. Um, from a people side, absolutely. You bring in the best talents that you can bring in uh, so that they can make sure that people are happy while they're working, uh, that you know, you're not going too far or too hard, uh, and that you know, they can put in the right structures and systems in place uh, for everyone to be. Trainings and everything, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, brilliant. And um, so 
just I wanted to ask a little bit more about the industry, but just sure. to, to get, is there a Leeds investor or and were Mubadala involved? Were you able to convince your former <laughs> your former colleagues? Uh, <laughs> we had some angel tickets from my former colleagues, uh, but uh, you know we're too, we were too small. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they write very very big checks. So yeah. hopefully at some point in the future we'd love to have them on board. Amazing, yeah. I don't doubt it. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, so Sanad, so you know for. On the fintech space, it's so diverse, it's so broad. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you're not necessarily in that space. You're more in the retail kind of merchant space. But uh, what's your view of the current, you know, fintech seems to be quite hot in the region at the moment. Mm -hmm. What's your view of that area? Uh, do you think that, uh, do you think it's saturated? Do you think that some of the bigger global tech giants are kind of primed to sort of take up a lot of market share? No, I think local knowledge and experience will always win out. Um, to what extent I think will remain to be seen. Uh, you know, Stripe recently moved into the region. I'm sure there's others on their way as well. Um, but, you know, from a broader fintech perspective, I think it comes down to this is what consumers want now, right? Uh, consumers want the NPLs. Uh, consumers want, um, you know, broader fintech solutions to ease their purchasing habits, right? I, I, most consumers don't want to carry cash anymore. Um, most consumers want to invest in the stock market. So I think uh, this part of the world set up their regulation in a way that enabled startups to address uh, these fintech requirements, which I think was quite critical to having the, the buzz that you're describing in, in fintech in the region. Uh, I'm not sure it's saturated yet. I, I think if you, if you look at kind of the you know, as, as you know, founders and VCs, et cetera, we always get wrapped up into um, the kind of cutting edge new frontier. Uh, when in reality, if you look at how the majority of the population still operates, uh, there's still a lot of room for penetration and, and market share and growth. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned buy now, pay later. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one of the, you know, the macro kind of trend around tech this year, especially on the public markets has been down. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that's given as an example is how, how hot buy now, pay later was a year ago yeah. versus the valuations now. Uh, you know, we could easily just say that that's just due to market macro things, mm -hmm. but was it a bit too soon? Like, do we really see, uh, do we really think that all the funds that went into that space mm -hmm. uh, warranted the sort of opportunity that was there? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Um, look, I think it's specifically BNPLs. Uh, I think it's a trend that recently got a name. Uh, if you look at companies like Carvana, uh, US-based uh, automotive used car online delivery, same as Kazoo, uh, they were doing BNPLs just with bigger products. Yeah. Right? What happened was... Uh, kind of a shift towards smaller products, smaller basket values. Um, and I think that valuations are not representative of uh, the value that a company creates necessarily because they're influenced by, by market conditions. Um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that these companies grew and they grew very, very quickly, uh, both from a consumer perspective and from a revenue perspective, uh, which means that, you know, even if right now their, value, their values may be lower, uh, you don't know where they'll be in 
five years post-recession, right, while they continue to build. Yeah, I guess, you know, because uh, the way I phrase that, you know, we t I talked about fintech and then I went into buy now, pay later. And But uh, a lot of it is about, you know, tech can sometimes be a horizontal and can work across different sectors. Mm -hmm. And especially with raising funds and opportunity when you're market sizing, yep. your narrative needs to sort of fit, doesn't it? So, yep. you know, do you look more at... Uh, at the sort of merchant retail at e-commerce, mm -hmm. is that what you sort of look at? Like, what's that statistic of, you know, X percent of the global retail is actually through e-commerce, and it's a very small number. Is that what yeah. you're looking at? Or are you looking at sort of other opportunities? I think with with e-com e-commerce doesn't work without good fintech, right? At the end yeah. of the day, cash on delivery only survives for so long. Um, so. I think they go hand in hand. Uh, I think there's a huge opportunity uh, to shift businesses towards being both brick and mortar and e-commerce businesses operating from the same infrastructure. Uh, but I also think that without fintech, you can't do that effectively. Mm. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I, 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 we'll talk about uh, the region and, and sort of bricks and mortar as well. But just while we're on fintech, sure. uh, and we don't have to go too deep into this, but your view on crypto and sort of token economy is was that something that ever came up when you were looking at the sort of payment side of things so i'm a very very early believer in uh, blockchain and crypto in general uh, i worked uh, and co-founded a cryptocurrency or blockchain hedge fund back in 2016 wow uh, yeah so I, I go quite some time back when it comes to to cryptos and blockchain when you were 19 or 18 yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but do i think it has application for our specific business today um not yet uh, i think we'd need to see much broader adoption from a regulatory perspective um, and kind of broader adoption from a consumer perspective is using them as a currency rather than a kind of storage of value mm. uh, for us to consider uh, taking that route on a fintech side. Okay, fair enough. I think when we chat again in the future, we could talk more about that <laughs> yeah. and give it more than a minute. Uh, yeah, so, you know, you studied in the US, you spent time in London, you obviously grew up here. Uh, one of the things I always ask is, do you think, you know, the Middle East is often labeled an emerging market? Mm -hmm. uh, do you think it's a market that will emerge? Interesting. I think it's, it's kind of already emerged uh, from some perspectives. Uh, the, some of the fintech, like, I mean, the ecosystem here is more developed than it is in some parts of Europe, right? From a startup uh, perspective, how closely we get to work with the regulator, how closely we get to kind of shape uh, the broader future of business, uh, you don't get in other places around the world. So to an extent, I think it has already emerged. Um, I think there's still a long way to go, though, from a consumer perspective. I think our consumers are kind of late adopters from a global perspective, uh, which is where the opportunity sits. Okay, interesting. But uh, is, would would your comment there be more of a, a reflection on the UAE and sort of other parts of the GCC? Do you yeah. think that extends across the region? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think UAE uh, is kind of miles ahead, and then you have kind of... Uh, let's say the Levant region, which has a lot of work to catch up on. Uh, mm. North Africa is moving very, very quickly, though. So okay. I expect North Africa to come next. Yeah, but the UAE is relatively small in terms of population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for, for it to be an emerging region in the same way that, you know, South America or, you know, India was per se, mm -hmm. uh, almost needs that sort of uh, uh, population and uh 
you know, opportunity across borders and across mm-hmm. countries and things like that. Uh, so, you know, is it is it a good thing? Obviously, it's a good thing that the UAE is advanced. But do you mm-hmm. think that sort of spillover and that sort of uh, that a, that sort of uh, you know snowball effect can happen across the region with startups? Absolutely, I think it it starts to breed competition, right? When you mm. have uh, kind of uh, the UAE being so advanced and mm. pulling in all the talent from all over the world, right? Uh, you start to have kind of a competitive element with neighboring markets that start to advance quicker and um, obviously that pushes the UAE to advance even quicker and it's all for the better. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, I was just thinking a little bit more about the industry and the region. So uh, and kind of what I wanted to talk about in terms of global giants, mm-hmm. you know, adding a new feature and then suddenly a whole fintech idea is gone per se, right? <laughs> Like talking Apple. about Apple? Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of them do it, don't they? It's kind of like, yeah. you know, that's why I would be so afraid to be in that space. Mm-hmm. Like you might have a brilliant idea and then they just add a feature and it's free. And it's like, yeah, yeah. But, and even like, even uh, even Facebook and Meta and Messenger and payments and things like that. But, um, you know, with, with Shopify, like they've obviously done a great job at onboarding um, online merchants and things like that. And you'll know the name, but there's a company in Saudi who do that just in Arabic. Mm-hmm. And, and they only, it, what, it begins with an S, what's it called? Which one? It's a Shopify in Saudi. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, but uh, I'll put it in the show notes. But basically, so they, they only do it in Arabic and their numbers are really good mm-hmm. because they're doing it for that market because Shopify haven't, haven't added Arabic yet and localized. Um, do, you know, when we talk about localization trends, how important is that sort of Arabic interface as well? Depends on the market as well. Uh, I think in Saudi it is very important. Uh, in Kuwait it is very important. In Oman it's very important. In some parts of the UAE it's super important. Um, but it, it, it depends. Uh, yeah. Uh, from a from a competitive perspective, you know, I had a very very good boss. Uh, his name was Ibrahim Ajami at Mubadala, um, and when we were looking at a couple of deals, he used to say, um, you know, invest in businesses, not products. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's important when you're building a business to build a business and not to build a product that can be replaced with uh, a feature. Right? Yeah, so, feature, yeah. yeah. That's really good, isn't it? Like, you know, I was at a startup event in DTEC last night and mm-hmm. talking about unicorns and valuation and people do too much, sometimes talk too much about the product and the tech. Like at the end of the day, it's businesses. Exactly. And businesses, you know, can have can add a lot of value and grow and grow revenue that, you know, the rules of business can change, but exactly. but as long as they kind of provide value and are, are doing things right. Um, but just a little sort of nuanced thing about the region, you know, the region is, the name of your company is related to store and mall. There are a lot of malls around here. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see the sort of bricks and mortar thing playing out? Like, you know, obviously you would want it to be integrated, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, there's another argument for saying that uh, there aren't, there isn't needs as much for bricks and mortar these days. I think the interesting thing is if you look at the countries that are, say, 10 or 20 years ahead of our part of the world, brick and mortar is still an extremely part of, extremely important part of their economies, right? So if you look at the U.S., uh, for example, uh, brick and mortar is not dead, even though Amazon is, you know, based out of the U.S. and offers all kinds of different services. You still have a ton of brick and mortar mom and pop shops. You still have businesses who are empowering those mom and pop shops like Toast and Stripe 
uh, growing rapidly year on year. Um, so I don't think it's a, we will live in a world, at least in the near future, so I'd say 30 to 50 years, where brick and mortar is obsolete. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's companies like us, Stripe, Toast, Square, uh, that are trying to make sure that they never become obsolete. Yeah, Square, Block, I get confused. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they change all the time. It's been a really interesting challenge to you, Sanad. You're Thank obviously you a really that. smart guy. Um, <laughs> so people to follow, yeah, as in people to follow Dukan Tech, or even if there's some investors... Or is it too late to get on board? In the- I think this round it's a little bit too late. Bit too late. Uh, hopefully next round, and you can follow us on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. Um, we do post a lot of our updates. Amazing, great. Well, thanks for the time this morning. Thank you as well. Cheers. Wow, what an impressive guy. 25 years old and uh, we, didn't, we didn't reveal at what valuation the company is, but you're talking about tens of millions of dollars already. Uh, three guys who grew up in the UAE studied here and are creating what is a, a company, a startup that's attracting interest from all over the world. So hugely impressive. Thanks a lot for, to Sanad for taking time out to share the story with us. Um, and. Uh, yeah, hugely interesting uh, space to follow in the future and a company to follow. Um, I've no doubt based on that conversation that we'll be hearing more about them in the future. I want to thank Vishnu who's come in uh, on his weekend to help produce the show today and Shahir for putting everything together. We will be continuing uh, the podcast over the summer months. I'm going to be away a couple of weeks, but we're going to do a few pre-records uh, at the end of July and early August. Uh, but we will keep it going uh, week on week. Uh, and please do, as, as usual, send any comments, send any feedback. It's at Smashy TV or at Smashy TV underscore EN on Twitter. Uh, there's at Smashy Business is the main one for this show on Instagram. But we have at Smashy TV, uh, S-M-A-S-H-I TV on Instagram. And you can also, of course, watch it on any of our smart uh, phone or smart TV apps or on the web browser as well. Uh, and yeah, if you're listening on Angami, SoundCloud, Podio, Apple, uh, Spotify, uh, please do recommend and share with someone as well. Uh, if you if you know anyone who'd like to be on the show in the future, uh, thanks a lot, and uh, speak to you next week. <laughs>